Hello everyone and welcome along to another of Shared Ireland's podcast. Today we'll be having a conversation with a remarkable lady. She was once homeless but now is the leader of the Green Party. It gives me great pleasure to welcome along Claire Billy. Welcome Claire. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for um, giving us time in this busy week, Absolute obviously pleasure. coming up to the EU elections. And I must say before we go any further, Claire, I'm delighted that we found you today because apparently there's a rumour that you've been missing. <laughs> You've been watching Twitter, where's Claire? Where's Claire? <laughs> where's Claire? Yeah, that's come about. We've been largely ignored from the televised EU candidate debates. Uh-huh. Um, so we've had a number of them across the BBC. Um, and next one is tomorrow evening, and uh-huh. that would be the, the Spotlight special. So they're You're going, on it? I no, I'm not on that one. You're not on no, it? No, we haven't been invited to, to be on that one. So apparently they've invited Jim Allister and not the Greens. Sure, Jim's more important than you, isn't it? Apparently that's more, it's more balanced than me anyway in the eyes of the BBC. <laughs> more balanced, that's the first I've ever yes. heard that one. <laughs> that was their reasoning, so yeah, where's Claire? Has happened on Twitter now. Yes, very good. Well, but I'm sure, here, all here pub- I am. All publicity is good publicity. I'm only in the good places. And I, and I must say, folks, by the way, this interview was arranged about six weeks ago, so it's just purely coincidental yeah. that Claire's podcast has gone out two or three days before the elections, but sure, that's to your advantage. It was a surprise elections too, wasn't it? Exactly, it was. <laughs> Claire, I touched on the introduction there about you once being homeless. You wouldn't mind maybe telling us a little bit about that period in your life and also about your early years, if you wouldn't mind. Yep. The, the homelessness episode, I was, uh, I've, I've been a lone parent. Uh, my children are growing up at 22 and 23 now. But uh, when they were in primary school, I was... I, um, studying at Queen's, Queen's University. So I was living on a student loan. I was living in private rental accommodation um, and I was given 28 days notice to quit my house um, by the, the landlord and the agent. Uh, apparently they were coming in to do a whole refurbishment and I was asking if I could do a monthly contract until I found somewhere else and they refused. So after 28 days, I uh, yeah, couldn't afford another house and I ended up homeless. So it was, but it was shocking. What, what year was that? Claire? That would have been two thousand and eight. So what? Eleven years ago. Eleven years ago. Not that long ago. Not at all. No, no, and still very raw memories. But a few months before that, I had also just booked our very first family holiday. It was I came into just a wee windfall by chance, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the first thing I did was book the holiday because I'd never had one with the kids. So we were heading off to Crete to have our first two weeks in the sun. Um, and you knew about the eviction prior to going yeah, to Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you didn't enjoy it. No, no, we had our holiday booked in January and this was now June. Um, so I was going into, i just finished second year at Queen's. My son had just finished primary school and was looking forward to going into secondary school. My daughter was going into P7. So it was a bit of a critical year for all of us as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember the housing executive then coming and taking all our furniture and stuff and putting it into storage and just sitting in the empty room on a suitcase and going to Crete the next morning. And we came back to Belfast on the 12th of July. No, no better day to arrive in Belfast with uh, a suntan and nowhere to live. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Um, so that whole holiday was spent just absolutely worrying about what we were going to do when we came back. And I'm sure looking back now, it's, a, it's maybe, and this might sound strange, but in a funny way, looking back at memories of that makes you appreciate maybe more 
for us all what we have now, maybe. And how easy and how vulnerable we all are yeah. and how easy it is that it can happen to exactly. absolutely anybody. Exactly. Um, and this was the end of my um, student year, so obviously money was tight, you know, mm. you're, you're, the way your student loans and all come in. It's not like I had an extra £600 as a loan parent on mm. a student income just sitting there for another rent deposit. You decided to go back to education as a mature student. Yeah. What was, the, I suppose, the, the thinking behind that and what drove you? Oh, that was... Um, well... When I first was pregnant, I'd lived in London for a couple of years and then come back to Northern Ireland and they were starting to talk about ceasefires and moving on. And I, I really didn't pay attention to politics too closely because to me it was like that Charlie Brown teacher, mm-hmm. you know, that wah, wah, wah in the background. <laughs> and it was Some all, people might still think that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so it was all a very sepia tone. It was on the news. It was on the TV. It was about killings, bombings, finding bodies at borders and... And it was terrifying, really. Um, so I didn't really tune out, but they weren't really talking anything related to my life either. Um, I'd never heard myself or or any of my family sort of mirrored in any of it. So I wasn't really listening. So when I heard about ceasefires, when I'd lived in London and come back again, and then I was pregnant, so I was having to make choices about whether I was going to be a mum, was I going to do babies? I'd never spent time around babies. I was terrified, petrified, <laughs> all these things I had to think about. But there was such a sense of hope. And you, I'm sure you remember it yourself and everything that came around those years. Uh, so my son was born in 1995. My daughter closely followed early 97. So they're Irish twins with 14 months between them. Yes. It was a bit of a family trait. I'm an Irish twin myself. <laughs> oh, There's right. 11 months between my sister and I. Oh, yes. So it just I think it was those years then of having babies and settling into motherhood and wondering what have I got to bring these kids mm-hmm. you know um, I didn't work out steadily um, I was again been a lone parent very vulnerable I worked cash in hand or lived on benefits and just that usual mm-hmm. scene that you get with um, working class lone parents and everything that they, they have to try and juggle and manage so I had to turn it into something a wee bit more secure so when the kids were settled in primary school, I decided it was time for me to just test the waters and see what it is that I was going to be doing. So I remember actually starting a couple of A-levels in uh, the Belfast Tech. Um, the Black Man, is it now? Oh, it's student, student accommodation now, isn't it? But yeah, so I started there and didn't finish any of them. And I ended up doing a part-time women's studies course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an access course. Not that I knew what an access course was, but when I finished the two years, then one of my first modules, we did our university applications. And all of a sudden I was getting offers from universities to say that, uh, yep, I would be offered places. So I ended up at Queen's Very good. in 2005. And I ended up studying for a politics degree with a cultural and media studies minor with it. Well, well that's a great example that um, you've set for all our people, whether it be male or female. Well, I was also the first in my family to ever go to university. Oh, very good. Yeah, and Even I've better. now got my daughter doing her finals right now, so we've got another week to go with her and she'll be the second, brilliant. which is great. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, I read, Claire, that you were among the first intake of pupils at Leiden College, mm. the North's first integrated school. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of integrated education and would you like to see it become the normal practice here? <laughs> My memories of integrated education would not be what they are now. When we go back to those, I mean, I just go straight into the black and white days. You know, um, we didn't have a school. We didn't have a uniform. Oh, it was okay. all being made up on the hoof. There were 28 pupils. Yes, because there was no nothing to... There was nothing. Yeah. Um, 
so as I say, said earlier, I'm an Irish twin. So my sister was born in July and I was born in June. So we started primary one in the same year. Ah, yes. I went right through school together. So her and I were two of the first mm-hmm. 28 in that intake. And we were living in Antrim at that stage. And I remember there was no funding for the school. So there was no school buses. There was no bus passes. There was no government intervention on this one. And we travelled um, on the 8 o'clock express leaving Antrim. And it was called the Workers Express, straight mm-hmm. down the motorway in the Oxford Street bus station. And then there's just people from other places would all arrive and we would be picked up in a wee minibus and brought up to, to school. But the school then was in Arden Valley Scout Hall. So we had to go into a scout hall. It was right. like a huge big gym hall. Like, uh-huh. uh, and it had a, a divider down the middle of the room. Uh-huh. And we would divide the room up into two classrooms right. and go into the, the cupboards. And we had to set up the classroom then from there as well. So we had to set up our own tables and chairs and right. desks. And even the blackboards were on wheels. And we had to wheel them out and stuff as well. You know? It sounds like a um, carry-on. Oh, 100%. And I look back. But on the first day of Lagan, um, it was Arden Valley. So it's over on Shaw's Bridge there. And in Castlereagh Council's um, district. Mm-hmm. And there was such resistance to the school even being opened. Mm-hmm. And on our first day, there was the global media were at the front of the school. Yes. Everybody wanted to hear about this, uh-huh. but there were also huge protests as well. Yeah. Um, so I think half a Castlereagh Council was out protesting at the time. So, you know, 1981, and, and, that's all I'm telling you. <laughs> I'll be on Google. I was protesting me going to school when I was left. Just on the protest bit, like, you know, what was the people's main concern or objection? You will not teach Catholics and Protestants together. I went to a Catholic primary school and in P7 we have to do a confirmation. So that's a huge big church service. And when the church got wind that there were two pupils in the area going to an integrated school, they helicoptered in the bishop to come and take that confirmation service. And he denounced us from the pulpit. I was 10 at the time, so didn't pay attention really. I was just looking at my new dress and what my friends were wearing. But obviously my family, uh, friends, um, extended family from other countries were all there. It was a big occasion in the house. Um, But yeah, and and he said from the pulpit, there are Catholic schools, there are Protestant schools. Catholics and Protestant children will never be taught together. And then on our first day, Casbury Council came up to back them up as well. And so they protested out the school gates and there was an armed guard, there was an armed police guard outside the school on that first day as well. That's remarkable. Mm. 1981 what? Belfast. This, you have to, to think about the, the socio-political background at the time the hunger strikes were happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very yeah. vicious year mm-hmm. in in Northern Ireland so tensions were very very high and when I look back when I when I put it all together and look back I was just 10, 11, 12 going to school and I was just hanging out with my friends and the real the testimony and the bravery of those parents that set that school up is absolutely second to none and I still to this day will hold to my belief that I think that that was the biggest challenge to peacekeeping that is ever been seen in Northern Ireland. I suppose when you put it in that context back in 1981 and yeah. you say the hunger strikes and obviously shootings and killings going yeah. on on a daily basis, um, it seems strange hearing it now, but you're right, when yeah. you cast your mind back. Absolutely. And our school buses, when we eventually got them as well, you know, um, we when the school got a wee bit bigger and then the 
school buses would leave lag and, and come down the main arterial route so there would be a bus going down say the Castlereagh Road another one down the Armour Road the Ravenhill Road and heading out but more often than not our buses were rerouted to NE we were bricked we were stoned quite often it became nearly the the running the gauntlet getting the school bus down and into the town as well crazy stuff so yeah there were bricks for children yeah, yeah we were just yeah 14, 15 what what Looking back on it now, mm. what were the main benefits, do you think, from going through an integrated education? My family, I was born in Belfast, in Clonard. Um, 1977, we left Belfast and moved to Antrim. And in the house in Clonard was a two up, two down. It had an outside toilet. There was no bathroom. And it was just straight on street. Um, again, I was born in 1970, so it was... Even more black and white days, you know. <laughs> but I, you know, setting the scene, so there was no playground, there was no green spaces, there was, you know, there was the army, the riots, and but we were just kids, and you got on with it. Um, so I, I can't remember ever feeling miserable, but uh, I remember then getting the house in Antrim, and we moved up, and my dad had a car, so he would put me and my sister in the car and drive up the motorway to get us to the house, and my sister and I sitting in our swimming costumes and our wee rubber caps mm -hmm. because it had a bath in in this new house. And we used to just sit and play in the bath thinking it was a swimming pool mm -hmm. while he decorated the house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when we moved into Antrim and we had a front garden and a back garden and a bathroom and an indoor toilet and space mm -hmm. and kids just ran morning, noon and night. Yeah. Um, but it was a mixed housing estate, mm -hmm. so it wasn't segregated either. But we also had a Catholic primary and a Protestant primary yeah. on the estate. But we all played together and we were all friends and we just got on with it and knew somebody said they are father a bit different from the other one and yeah. do you bless yourself and I don't know how do you say hate you know, we didn't know, do you know? but you all played you all played like chases and hunts and all you know <laughs> called into everybody's house for a slice of orange in the way past and yeah. it was it was absolutely great mm -hmm. um, and that's just the way it was and so for me integrated education was not about meeting Catholics and Protestants because that was already a normal in my life mm -hmm. so in hindsight when I look back on it for me um it was that class divide mm -hmm. uh, and those barriers being overcome. So I've gone from a two up, two down in the, the lower falls to Antrim and Green Spaces to Lagan College in 1981 where my best friend lived in the Malone Road yeah. in a huge big house mm -hmm. and went to Tenerife on her holidays and had a jacuzzi in the I back suppose, garden. I suppose you became her best friend. Of course it did. We were all best <laughs> friends. <laughs> but and then other friends lived. I mean, we weren't all from the same area. So there was people from Craig Avon, from Lisburn, from Malone, we were Antrim, there were Ballycillan, West Belfast, it was yeah. all over the place. And we were a group of friends. So we all travelled together. Do you still keep in contact with anybody? Yeah, I do. I do, do indeed. Think? Yeah. I think that's great. And when we look back on it, we all laugh and just say, uh, do you know, it wasn't an education we got, we were just an experiment. Uh. And it's absolutely spot on. <laughs> no, it's so true. But um, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I absolutely loved going to school. But having said that, I didn't, I wasn't a studier left with one CSE as it was at the time, yes, you know. Yes, yes. I did my learning later in life, uh, but yeah. absolutely loved yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. So it was about getting to know, I think, particularly this city, Belfast, um, inside out, back to front. And these were my streets because I wasn't contained and I wasn't confined. And I think that that was the best learning that I ever got from Lyon College. A hundred percent. And from a Green Party perspective, yeah. uh, is that something that you think should be promoted as we move forward? Yes, I, I'm, I'm really, to this day, still very disappointed that we're nearly, <coughs> excuse me, 40 years later and only 65 of our, our schools, both primary and post-primary, are integrated. Mm -hmm. You know, So... Um, 
we want to look at overcoming our barriers, breaking down differences, starting to learn and grow and friendship together. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest things and the easiest ways that we can do it is through integrated education. Um, from an early age, which helps set the tone in people's minds and their thinking. Yeah. And it's about the ethos of the school. You know, it's not just about having Catholics and Protestants in a classroom together. And you know that there are a lot of schools out there who say, but we're nearly integrated, you know, because they take people from different faith backgrounds or none. Yeah. Um, but it's a wee bit more than yeah. just that. It's an ethos and it's yeah. a learning that comes along with it. And that's what we really need to get our heads around. Very good. Claire, um, in the event of a border poll being called, what would the Green Party's approach to this be? <laughs> now, that's a very small question, yeah. just to get things moving. Great. Um, I think a border poll is a perfectly valid thing to call. I think we really need to be looking at why it's being called and why now. And I think that um, the one word that would come into my mind would be Brexit. Mm-hmm. And let's not do Brexit part two. I think we should be all learning from the disaster that we're currently going through. Um, a border poll for me, we haven't had a peace process yet. I think we have had a political process, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a peace process. So when our communities are still so fractured and divided and segregated, when we can't even do learning and sharing together, when the traumas of the past are still so present, when we have more people dying by suicide in Northern Ireland since the peace process than were ever killed during the conflict, when we have that level of intergenerational trauma, you know, serious systemic poverty and deprivation in exactly the same places as they would have been before, when we have a drugs problem that we cannot even begin to speak about, never mind tackle, you know, the social ills that we have to try and drag out the fears um, that a border poll or a united Ireland brings to the majority, I think is quite irresponsible. And certainly to throw it into the mix without a proper plan or the bravery to say what that might look like. Um, having said that, if there was a border poll, uh, we would assess, we don't have a position as a party on the constitutional issue. Um, we are linked to our sister party in the South. We go right across Europe and the world. Um, so it's not that we're trying to avoid the, the nationalist unionist sort of question. We have members in our party who are either or or neither. Mm-hmm. Um, but the border poll to me was settled in the Good Friday Agreement. So if there are those agitating to have the border poll now, my question is why? Um, when we're going through the chaos of Brexit, when the 50 plus one model has shown to be insufficient to get in the proper support because to me, Brexit, um, I think it's very disingenuous for those who um, are supporting Brexit to say the sp- people have spoken, now we must deliver. I see it very differently. I think the people have split and that causes chaos. And not only the people, but the devolved regions have split. So this is a, a, a political quagmire. I fail to see how politics can deliver on Brexit. And that's why I would be supporting um, the people's vote because I think that that's the only way to get out of the the political stalemate that we have. So if I apply that logic to um, a border poll in Ireland, for me, there is an awful lot to be done before we even go anywhere close to calling a border poll. The time is not now, but 
we can have those conversations. I would not want to see it left in the hands of politicians or political parties. I would like to see forums such as civic conventions, citizens' assemblies, or those conversations need to happen because we need to learn to trust each other. Uh, but the, the final note on it is that we uh, cannot get away from the fact that a new Ireland is coming mm-hmm. and she's on her way and she's called climate chaos. Mm-hmm. So regardless of your borders um, and regardless of our histories, we are rapidly going to have to start changing how we do business, how we network and live and learn together on this island because I think the change is going to be forced upon us unless we start making those decisions right now. Uh-huh. Very good. So I take it then that the Green Party, you would support and you would, I'm assuming, attend a New Ireland Forum to discuss a future referendum, border poll, call it what you want? Absolutely not a bother at all. I will attend anywhere and talk to anybody about anything, of course. Yes. Um, and I think that they're fascinating and necessary conversations to be having. Mm-hmm. You know, Because whether it leads to a border poll or leads to changing other people's minds, the first thing it's going to lead to is a sit-down, a conversation and an understanding of other people. Exactly. And as you alluded to earlier, I think if we have learned anything from the Brexit debacle, is that there was all sorts of you know misinformation going out there yeah. from from all sides. Yep. And um, I think the responsible thing to do for us as a society is to have a prolonged discussion about any new future Ireland. So yes. we're all aware of the, the pitfalls as well as the benefits, obviously. Absolutely, 100%. And it has to be consensus-based. Mm-hmm. So you have to bring people with you, which means that you have to sit down, you have to have a look at what this is, mm-hmm. what it could be, um, and how we can manage it. Yeah. Claire, with Brexit, the UK will depart from the EU emissions trading system, um, meaning they will no longer be bound by the EU emissions targets. Is this a concern for you and the Green Party? It's a huge concern. And, um, and I think it should be a concern for everyone for because everyone, we yeah. can see the UK government's track record um, on climate chaos, on even just holding to the agenda that they've set. I mean, for last week, for example, um, they raised the VAT level on solar residential solar panels from 5% to 20%. Should it not be going up? So 100%. Do you know what I mean? So, instead, but that twenty percent, that fifteen percent rise makes them completely economically unviable. Yeah. So whether you can afford to install it or not doesn't matter. It's just an economic waste of space on your house now. And they have completely left the tariffs on fossil fuels at the five percent. So that to me makes absolutely no sense. And that comes a week or two after they declare a climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So, I know. I appreciate we're living in Ireland here, but like when you've got leaders in the world like Donald Trump saying that uh, climate change isn't, yeah. isn't a real thing even, yeah. you know, it makes you scratch your head in all time and say, you know, are people taking this seriously? It's here, that's the bit, you know, it's not something that's coming, it's not something that we need to be looking to, it yeah. is here, it is now. Yeah, it's, it's a, a, we really, look at our really extremes in weather, for example, yeah. you know, and even just last year coming into the summer, I remember we had eight foot snow drifts, mm-hmm. and then eight weeks later, we had... Um, sunstroke and heat waves yeah. you know, and it's those extremes that we're looking at yeah. and it's the you know how that impacts on our food production for example on our land management right. and all these things so there are urgent um, issues that we need to really come down and knuckle under so I am very fearful about our environmental record coming out of Brexit yeah. um, especially when we're talking about setting up these trade deals with China with the US with 
you know, other countries Where as well. Where there is no control over them? There's no control at all. And I know that China are looking for sustainable food mm-hmm. supplies, for example, because they're so contaminated yeah. that they can't produce their own food to, to, to feed their own populations. Mm-hmm. So we have an amazing environment here. We have fantastic agriculture here. Um, and to start moving into factory farming rather than our family farming mm-hmm. is not to feed ourselves, it's to try and do these trades with outside countries as well, while at the same time, we're damaging our own environment and we just have to look at RHI for example and the next one that's going to be coming is the anaerobic digester Um, so when we build big huge factory farming Mm -hmm. that's obviously chickens and pigs are what we're looking at here in Northern Ireland so in dealing with the waste from those animals we um, then set up uh, a system of anaerobic digestion which was burning the animal poo basically Mm -hmm. so there's another big poo scandal coming so but once that's burned, so that produces a gas, but what do you do with the waste of that? Mm-hmm. So it has been mulched back into our land, mm-hmm. but it's a chemical pollutant that mm-hmm. has been basically re redug into the soil. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge investigation going on. That's UK-wide, by the way. Right, okay. That's not just in Northern Ireland. Of course, we'll have our own wee special take on it here. Yeah, but no the, Northern, yeah, the Northern Ireland Audit Office have been instructed by Westminster to carry out the financial investigation here and the, all that one and um, it's happening across in GB as well mm-hmm. and the difference with this one in RHI is that it's coming directly out of everybody's pockets so there is a percentage of um, your energy bill went straight into funding this program mm-hmm. very good that's interesting so I have no faith in the Westminster government to uphold any climate chaos record or, or start moving forward in a sustainable model that we urgently need to be doing so brexit is a great fear for us yeah okay um you've kindly invited me along to your office here in stormont today um what give me the inside take on these recent talks <laughs> or uh, lack of talks or what what's happening i wish i could tell you because that's another words clear moment where <laughs> <laughs> So we're not being invited into those either. So that's really, for me, is a process of networking and relationships with other parties. So it's about me having the conversations uh, Can, uh, I, can I just stop, stop you there for a wee second? So are you really saying to me now that you have to go and talk to other parties to get informed of what's happening in the talks, yep. even though that you are the leader yep. of your party yep. and you've got an office and a staff here in Stormont that you are being excluded from yep. these talks? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Karen Bradley and the NIO have never invited me to any engagement. I find that nearly unbelievable, only that you're telling me it. Yep. I find it unbelievable that Karen Bradley's a real person, because I've never seen or heard of her. (laughs) Right, okay. Moving swiftly along, Claire. You attended the Ireland's Future event in the Waterfront Hall in January of this year, an event that garnered much media attention. A couple of questions about that. What was your own experience of the event from a personal perspective? And the second one, what would you say were the key takeaway points, if any? Um, I was, first of all, delighted to have been asked along and included and given a speaking slot. Um, and on the day when I arrived, I, the attendance was pretty phenomenal. Um, and I think that was the first thing that struck me. Sorry, I'm still laughing here about <laughs> that Karen Bradley is a real person. <laughs> Doesn't see her there either, though, do you know what I mean? 
Listen, I have written letters to her. I have requested <laughs> meetings with her. I have asked for information. I am blanked. So that's why I say that. So it's not just the talks process. It's engagement as a whole. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> back to the waterfront. Back right? to the waterfront, yes. <laughs> but no, I thought it was really good. There was uh, a bit of learning, I suppose, for me as well. Um, I still found it rather limited in terms of the conversation that happened. Um, whereas instead of a dialogue, it was a series of speeches more than discussions as well. So it was just, um, I think that obviously the majority of speakers were for um, opening up the conversation around a border poll or United Ireland. But th- I never came away with anything that made me know a wee bit more about what that might be, mm-hmm. how we might go about it. Okay. You know, So to me, I, I, that's, I was left a wee bit deflated that I didn't learn um, although I did see a lot of faces so it was good a good networking opportunity for sure um, and it certainly raised the debate mm-hmm. without a doubt um, but I haven't seen the debate move on so it's okay to be calling for it I mean it's perfectly valid to want a United Ireland or have all these discussions but you need to move it on. One of the criticisms that unionists had towards that event was that it was like Republicans talking amongst themselves but the response Back to that was that Republicans and nationalists needed to have a conversation amongst themselves first okay. before they could open up the debate until, I suppose, involved yeah. everyone. Um, I got the feeling that there was a wee bit more than just Republicans and nationalists there as well. Yeah. There were people there for a listen. I remember speaking to a few unionists who were in the... Jim, Jim Dornan spoke at the... Yes, that's right. that's right. But a few people in the audience who did come and speak to me, I think there was a pastor from the Shankill Road who turned up with his son yeah. as well. There was an, another person came to speak to me. He was from up the North Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all wanted to come along and see what this was and how the, you know see if they could engage with it as well. Mm-hmm. So there was much more than just nationalists and, and Republicans in there. Um, I know quite a lot of friends who were in attendance as well. They probably wouldn't fit those those two tags either. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it was a very interesting crowd. It was it was a very buoyant atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very welcoming, I have to say. Um, but yeah, let's have more of them and break them down. But I would like to have an outcome from them as well. I would like to mm-hmm. yeah, just just hear ideas more than a position stated. Yeah, understood. Claire, under your leadership of the Green Party, um, it has given great focus to the LGBT rights. Um, Is fixing the petition of concern, if we ever get Stormont back up and running, would that be one of your party's main concerns? That was one of our main concerns at the very start as well. Um, Other parties were resistant and wouldn't have the the discussion on that one. So I'm glad that it's... uh, it's an issue that everybody can recognise needs to be sorted now as well. But absolutely, the petition of concern has been abused for its whole time throughout this assembly process. I mean, it was never meant as a, a single party veto. Yeah. Um, but not just on LGBT issues, on, on many issues. But uh, Stephen Agnew, when he was our, our MLA, our sole MLA, he did use, he has signed it before as well. And that was in the context of welfare reform. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the, the times that it should be getting used, you know, when you have to stand up for the marginalised, the most disadvantaged, and those who are going to be impacted the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were good reasons for having the petition of concern. I think that it's just been abused and shouldn't be used. Um, it certainly needs reformed. Um, but I think that that's going to be done. 
um, to be building those trusts and just allowing a majority vote to happen mm-hmm. uh, and to be acted upon. Democracy in action. We know what that is here in Northern Ireland. I'd love to see that. <laughs> but that would be a great point to get to, yes. Yes, it would be. Well, sure, whenever you're allowed into these talks, you'll never be able I to say that. <laughs> what are we talking about by that stage? <laughs> yes. In regards rights-based issues, mm. um, Claire, like this, do you feel you're more aligned with the Alliance, SDLP and Sinn Féin rather than the Unionist parties? I don't know who I would feel aligned to on that one. Um, and I say this as a woman, I was an abortion rights campaigner long before I was ever elected. Um, so when I hear about this rights-based agenda, I just look at all these parties and sort of go, okay, well, you know, you just weren't behind my rights in my whole life. You know, I never stopped anybody taking their seats in Stormont. It certainly didn't take mine in, or take, you know, I didn't have to refuse my seat. I wanted in here to actually change these things. Um, so... I, I take it with a pinch of salt, a rights-based agenda. Um, I think that it's, again, very politicised, and particularly with the Irish Language Act, um, marriage equality. These things didn't bring the Assembly down, but I understand that there was no progress being made. I completely get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and abortion rights was never on the agenda. So, you know, how do all these things come in together? Mm-hmm. So we brought the Assembly down over the RHI scheme, Um you know, just after we'd implemented austerity and welfare reforms and things were getting very hot in the Assembly and now we've moved it into a rights-based agenda before we can get it up and going again. But I struggled all my life for my rights. Mm-hmm. You just touched there on the Irish Language Act. Um, last week we released a podcast with Linda Irvine, okay. who um, obviously is from a unionist tradition but is heavily promoting the Irish language. And she told me that she runs 15 classes a week Mm -hmm. in um, East Belfast and that she is opening up a library now for um, Irish books, obviously. And she has actually more people coming to her classes every week than they have in the Falls Road. What's your position and view, or even the party's position and view, on the Irish Language Act? Well, we would support an Irish Language Act. We've no difficulty in doing that either. the detail of which is again another one of those that the goalposts shift every now and again as well. So Stephen has met uh, quite a lot with Conor and Gaelica. I'm meeting with them on Wednesday of this week as well. So I'm happy to keep those conversations going. I want to hear from their side how it is going. Um, but it, it's another one of those that we we, we should not be politicising a no. language. I find this really abhorrent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even in any outcome, when we, and I'm sure that we will, um, get this legislated for eventually um, that we're, we're not doing it out of badness or spite and it's not about somebody owning a language Correct. because a language has to belong to everybody and it should never be forced and it should just be natural and left be so I think that there's another whole body of work to do in that cultural yeah. understanding in that sort of revivalist and when I speak to people in the south as well actually at and, and and I do often, and I asked about what was the impact of legislating for the Irish Language Act in the South, and it's a very mixed response that we get there as well. So I, I'm listening, um, and I'm happy to listen. Um, I will support an Irish Ang- Language Act, not a bother, um, but it's not my priority, so therefore I don't, I'm not prescriptive about it. Yeah. I don't have my set, well, this should be included and that shouldn't be included. I'll engage, and I'm happy to do so, and I'll continue to talk to the groups. Very good. 
Claire, what steps are required to create a truly shared Ireland? A truly shared Ireland? Now, that's a nice simple question. That is, you. isn't it? <laughs> um, barriers need to be removed. Uh, um, I think that we are a, a deeply sectarianised society and until we can acknowledge that in all its forms, mm -hmm. um, then we're not going to go too far too fast. Mm -hmm. And then I begin, that's where I go back to have a look again at, we have had a political process at the cost of a peace process mm -hmm. um, for all the reasons that I've mentioned before, that our communities are still very closed and segregated, still majoritively single identity. Mm -hmm. um, poverty is rife, um, intergenerational trauma. We've never been able to deliver on legacy and the past. Um, and when I look at all those structures, I mean, under the Stormont House Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement and everything that's come in between, I mean, there's no perfection here and there's no way that you can sort of put one deal together that will please all the people. But we need to start moving on it. Um, and I do get concerned. I do worry that it's been led or embedded within political party responsibility so much. Um, and when we look at the institutions agreed under the Stormont House, for example, in every level there is political representation and yet nowhere is the victims and survivors' voices heard. Mm -hmm. And that to me is just another sign of it's not going to work. I think um, it's widely accepted that the Good Friday Agreement was you know, a good agreement. But Starting point. One, one of the, the serious problems with it, that there was no mechanism yeah. to address victims, survivors and yeah. things like this. So until we can have those, and they're very uncomfortable conversations, mm -hmm, and I can't imagine we'll ever be in a place where everybody agrees on something, mm -hmm. um, but this is why it needs to be depoliticised now. And there, there's a body of work to do, and I do often ask the questions, is it time to split the, into two processes? Um, do we have a political process where we elect our government and our reps, and we learn what it is to be an open, transparent, accountable mm -hmm. government? and delivering for people because that hasn't really happened very much here mm -hmm. either and we keep going into these stalemates um, and then we can bring the legacy into a separate process and it is managed by outside independent arbitrators mm -hmm. to deliver what has already been agreed. Yeah, because there's victims on all sides so yes. it's not like one side should want it to happen and one shouldn't because every section of society unfortunately was traumatised yeah. by our past. Yeah. Exactly, you know, and, and we have to do something to deal with that because it's not just the past, it is the present yeah. and it is impacting on, you know, the, the new generations mm -hmm. and our current young people um, and that's not fair, that's not okay mm -hmm. and they should not be saddled with our past. So I think it's time to have those types of uncomfortable conversations, start looking a wee bit wider than where we're sitting and seeing if there is a more deliverable way to maintain the processes. I see you're wearing an ice cream dress today. Is that sending out a subliminal message to everybody? Did <laughs> <laughs> do an interview later on camera? See if they get the green oh, on. You very see, very good. Very good. <laughs> no, it's just my favourite colour. Yes, of course, of course it is. <laughs> Why the green party, Claire? Why the green party? For you, I was, like yeah. I suppose I, I I was studying politics at Queen's University when I sort of found that there were an actual real party and they were here in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. And I'd probably in the past voted for them on my ballot slip somewhere along with the Monster Raven Looney Party and mm -hmm. all of the rest. Yeah. Um, anyone but the above. Um, so yes, studying 
at Queen's, then I'd heard that they were here and I'd started having a wee look. Um, but I remember one tutor at Queen's, because um, I went back as a mature student, so I was a lot older than others in my class. I was in my mid-30s and they were in their late teens. Mm-hmm. And one of our tutors asking, hands up, a show of hands in the room, who's interested in going into politics mm-hmm. after you finish studying? And nobody put their hands up. Right. And then the tutor just said, well, what are you studying politics for? That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it starts scratching my head. Mm-hmm. But I think the most part was I was an angry woman. And I was really... Are you still an angry yeah, woman? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I am. For me, anger's a really great emotion. <laughs> yes, I suppose that's... Okay. It generates change. That's true. It keeps things moving. So it's not angry as in a vicious or aggressive, just anger as in acknowledging yeah. here, this isn't dead on, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and having to move it on. So yes, I mean, I'd... I'd come from a very poor background and not an unhappy one and them two should never be linked together but I come from a very working class family um, but I grew up in Holland um, I've got Italian blood All right. born in the two up two down on the Falls Road with Italian blood and I did most of my childhood was spent in Holland because my mum worked bringing kids out to yeah, Catholics and Protestants across Northern Ireland and did I hear you you're yeah. fluent in the language as well you are. I was yes I was a bilingual child yeah, at the time, not so much anymore. But um, So I think that my growing up in Northern Ireland, although it might seem normal to me, I realise it isn't really the norm for yeah. most. Um, but I just know that there's other ways of being. I, you know, when I look at the, the wider world out there, um, there's so much to learn, there's so many cultures to explore, there's good ideas, good practices, um, and I want to do my bit to try and bring that in. But as a woman, so and, and, and I never fit this... Um, Catholic, Protestant, Nationalist, Unionist, Republican, Loyalist identity because no matter where I go, the first thing I'm seen categorised and boxed off as is a woman. Yes. So it doesn't matter. I mean, the rest can come later. Mm. So I will be culturally treated as that. And here in Northern Ireland, certainly for the life that I've grown up, that's never been a great box to be put in. Um, So that's what I mean when I say angry, you know, and the opportunities that have been afforded to me and the limitations Mm -hmm. that have surrounded me just by being female mm-hmm. um, I, I want to change that I want to open that up I want to do what I can I think we have an excellent women's sector here we have a proud history of uh, feminist activists from a huge swathe of the spectrum um, and I love and admire so many of them so um, yes I'm only here because I stand on the shoulders of giants but that's why I chose the Greens that I found a party that I could both be myself in bring something to mm-hmm. and learn from um, and I've seen all those opportunities in the party and it's and so it's far very, worked out. Very good. That's promoting females within the Green Party important for you? A hundred percent, yes. Within all of public life yeah. and beyond, absolutely. Um, and I think that that's another big failure of the processes that we put in, that we haven't explicitly written women into those processes. Mm-hmm. And we just look at... Um, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, for example, specifically looks at women's role in post-conflict society and the peace building thereafter. So it's a women's role in rebuilding the institutions. And everywhere that we see this backed and rolled out, we see the position and the influence and the voices of women are put fairly and squarely to the fore, yet we refuse to acknowledge that it can apply here in Northern Ireland. So there's there's many um, in terms of CEDAW. Uh, so it, it goes back to that equality agenda you were trying to bring up earlier on. You know, um, my equality agenda 
is the equality and discrimination I have suffered all my life. Mm-hmm. And these go far beyond language rights. And I know that these are all important. I'm not setting one up against the yeah. other. I'm just calling out the selective mm-hmm. list that is being used at the minute. Who's your inspiration? Oh, don't know. <laughs> Changes. Um, <I'm> <laughs> no. Uh, well, there's Angela Davis on my wall, sitting oh, beside Angela. So I think she's an absolute inspirational woman. And she was here in Belfast, I think it was two years ago. Um, and I, I just sit in awe listening to her life lived, her passion, um, and certainly would, would be somebody that, yeah, I would have her around my dinner table. <laughs> Very good. Angela Davis. Angela Davis. Claire, there are 11 people here running for three EU seats. Mm. It's widely accepted by um, the media that Sinn Féin and the DUP will get one each. Why should you get the third? Because I think it's time that Northern Ireland had a green voice in Europe. Um, and I know that Brexit is the, the huge issue on most people's mind when they are thinking about where to put their vote in this election, and rightly so, um, and it's something that we're, we're going through at the minute, but it's not the only issue. Uh, climate chaos is here, it is happening, and I think that that needs to be put to the fore as well. So, and again, we are running, the Greens are running candidates across this island, across GB, and right across Europe, mm-hmm. um, and the predictions at the minute is that we are set to become the largest party bloc in Europe. So if I win the seat, that I won't be starting from a position on my own. Mm-hmm. I will be joining a You're very large, a very large um, and influential voice already there. Um, and we started seeing the videos coming from them last night where they're all sitting waiting in hope that we're going to get an Irish voice joining them as well. But, you know, Brexit to me is going to be something that's going to rumble on, um, I expect, for generations. Because whether we leave or don't leave, or whether we get a deal or no deal, or whether we start doing trade under WTO with other countries, these things take decades to set up. Mm -hmm. Um, This doesn't happen overnight. So these are going to be ongoing negotiations, whereas climate chaos is here, and it's now, and it's immediate. And we have 11 years left now to mitigate against the worst impacts of irreversible damage. Um, Irreversible. Irreversible Mm -hmm. damage. You know, so where are you going to be in 11 years? It was 11 years ago we started this interview. 11 years ago I was homeless. I was a homeless student and now sitting here today. But that only seems like yesterday to me. This is not a long time. So we look at our school kids at the minute. What's their lives going to be in 11 years? So to me, that is the urgency, that is the priority. Yeah, it's not something that you can put on a long finger. No, and it's not something that you can p- politically negotiate your way out of. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. going to tell us yeah. how, how it's going to be. steps need to happen now. And we can't do it in isolation. Mm-hmm. We have to do it in collaboration with all our European um, sisters and brothers and countries. And this has to be a globally led one. So please send a, gr- a strong voice to put those strong policies and fight for our right to a happier world. Okay. Last question that we always like to ask everybody. Um, Claire, um, who would be your three guests at your dinner party? And more importantly, why? They can be dead or alive. My gosh. It's a fictional dinner party. (laughs) And I know you'll be inviting me now as one of them, so that's that's taken. Are you vegan? I can't be. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Who would I invite to my dinner party? I would have to invite 
my friend Kelly, Kelly, Kelly O'Dowd, because okay. she's just the best crack right. and just knows her wines too well. Oh, okay, nice. so she'd have to be my wee sommelier yes. there with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would love to get a chat with my Molum. Oh, I really nice. would, just given the context that we're all in at the minute. Yes. And I never met her when she was here. Um, and I've met her stepdaughter, Henrietta, a few times. Um, and yes, I think... I would really like so to. So there's a theme here. You've never met many so secondary state. Then. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm in the wrong job. <laughs> <laughs> Not playing this well. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to have to dig them up and get them out to dinner. Right? <laughs> okay. So that's two. Mum Kelly died, and uh, who would my third one be? Have to be my daughter, I suppose. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay. On that note. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Claire, uh, giving up your time in this busy week for you, leading up to the elections on Thursday. Um, I think you've been very open and honest in your answers. And on behalf of Shared Ireland and our listeners, I'd like to thank you very much. And before we go, will we go and try and get you into these talks here? I'll give you a hand out, break down the doors. I could probably go in as your guest. You can get in quicker than I would. I won't go. Just fear that out now. Down the roundabout now. On that note, thank you very much. Pleasure, thank you.